Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Um, it is a privilege, an honor, and a great opportunity to be sitting here with um, Professor Michelle Purdy of Washington, an associate professor at Washington University, who has recently published an uh, amazing, I have my worn copy here, uh, <laughs> Transforming the Elite Black Students in Desegregation of Private Schools with uh, University of North Carolina Press. It's such a phenomenal book. Um, you know, I, I've read draft or two before I saw it in publication and it's just a really good book. So congratulations on your publication. Thank you, Dr. Hill. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with me this afternoon and, uh, and all your support along the way. Um, it's something else to think about the fact that this summer marks 10 years of being uh, a professor, right? First an assistant professor and now an associate professor and then then I go back six years of graduate school and there's certain key folks who have been, been a part of the journey uh, all this time. And, and you're certainly one of those folks who's been a part of the journey for a long time. So thank you for your help and support. And I look forward to the conversation today. Of course, my, my absolute pleasure. And I know like me, there's a lot of, a lot of scholars uh, in, in the field and students who really enjoyed the book. And then also um, it's great that the Society for the History of Children and, and Youth you know, picked up and, and reviewed it. And I just want to pick up on a few themes, you know, uh, to go along with the journal, but then also just, I think, good information for us to really unpack a little bit about who you are um, also as a scholar. <laughs> and then in relation to the, this book you, you published. So if you don't mind, you know, we're, I'm interested about your um, intellectual journey and inspiration that led to write this book. But I also want to say in your epilogue, um, so I'll start with the end a little bit. You, you Okay. Give, you give us a sense, right? So you talk about writing this, you, you, you write, um, you undertook this project during Barack Obama's presidency of the United States. And you write also in this contemporary area of social protest and tension between diverse populations and institutions, the historical implications for considering the des desegregation of Westminster, um, as you have in this book resonates deeply. And that's so, you know, there's such a powerful moment to be writing a book and also very inspiring. And there's also just a lot going on. Could, could you elaborate about what, what it's like to write during this historic moment and what led yeah. you to write it? It's, it's been, you know, so it has been a historic time, I think for those of us who are committed to advancing the history of black education, especially the history of black education that shows black folks as agents of change, right? And to counter long-held deficit notions um, that we know exist in research, whether in education or in other fields, um, that has led to many to hold deficit notions of Black folks and other marginalized people, right? Um, and so it has definitely been an interesting time to research, write, 
um, and obviously have a book published um, within the last what decade and a half or so. Um, so, but go back a little bit further. So what led to me running to write this book? Um, so over 20 years ago, I started out as an undergraduate uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, went there as an undecided arts and sciences student and ultimately ended up taking classes in both education and African, African-American studies and landed on those two areas as my, as my undergraduate majors with a minor in music. And then through my classes in education at AFAS, I was exposed to such scholars as Vanessa Siddle Walker and her first book, Their Highest Potential, James Anderson's first book, uh, The Education of Blacks in the South, obviously classic works by Du Bois, um, you know, the list goes on, right? Um, and then as well as just thinking about history of education in a very social historical way, um, really thinking about folks from the ground up, right? And um, so ultimately became much more interested in the history of education um, through my Mellon Mays project, which at that time focused more so on higher education. Um, but stayed and did a master's in history. I wasn't sure after graduating if I wanted to do a PhD in history or a PhD in education. And I stayed and did the master's in history. And then I worked for a couple of years in Jackson, Mississippi at the private school I attended growing up. Um, I went there K through 12th grades. And it was both doing the master's and working in education, both in higher ed and K through 12, that I decided my research questions were really rooted in education, right? About what is it that we can do better for black students, for black education writ large, and how can I use the lens of history to help us answer, to ask and answer some of those questions, both historically and obviously for our, you know, as, as folks in education, what does that history then help us to think about for the present, right? So my questions were deeply rooted about how do we make education better, but wanting to use the lens of history, as opposed to perhaps doing a PhD in history, which may have been more oriented around bigger questions about historical interpretation, et cetera, right? Um, but it was working at St. Andrews and thinking about what I wanted to study in graduate school that led me to think about we know so much about public school desegregation and rightfully so, right? Most kids in the United States go to public schools. Um, but as a black woman growing up in Mississippi, I didn't know who, who had come before me in private schools. And private schools have a particular place in the Southern landscape as they do throughout the country. I have learned since embarking on this book, but in particular in the South where there were literally private schools, as you know, established by whites so that their kids could avoid even going to public schools, right? Um, so I simply start out wanting to know kind of who were some of the first black students to go to private schools, especially kind of elite historically white private schools in the South, right? Um, and then I was fortunate to go to Emory University and, and, and uh, for my PhD in educational studies and to work with Vanessa Siddle Walker and to have other mentors there um, who, who spanned educational research, including Dr. Jacqueline Jordan Irvine, known for her amazing work in teacher education and leadership education, Carol Hahn in civics education and social studies education, and then be able to work with folks outside of the Department of Education, uh, like Brett Gaston, um, who was in African African American studies at the time, but whose first book had been on 
desegregation in Delaware, and then also with Leroy Davis, who was a historian in African, African-American history. So I was able to really kind of develop this interdisciplinary committee um, to help me shape a project that ultimately obviously became a lot more than just about who were the first black students to go to these schools, right? So that was like my initial question. But then as you know, as a historian, we there's context, right? So then the question started getting into, okay, so I may know who the first black students are, but I don't know why these schools even decided to desegregate when Brown versus Board of Education did not apply to them. So as much as we talk about and study the iconic Brown versus Board of Education decision, that decision had no legal ramifications um, directly for private institutions, right? So why did these schools decide to desegregate or in some cases decide to increase the number of black students attending them? Um, then I wanted to know what was the culture like, right? For those of us who study schools, so much of what we are trying to impart to determine is, is how culture and climate affects student experience, right? And so then I had to, <laughs> then I had to dig into, okay, so what was the culture like at this school before black students arrived and then after they arrived, right? Um, and then ultimately it became part of a national conversation because of how Westminster was situated as this leading private school in the South um, with, a Nash, with a leader, with the school leader himself being one of the few Southerners to actually kind of be on the national scene with respect to independent education um, during the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and then ultimately, the heart of the book is still, and very much so, who were the first Black students? What did they experience? How did they navigate this place? From where did they come from? Um, and so that's how the, the project unfolded, right? And so as a graduate student, I did research in the archives at, at Emory, at, at obviously at Westminster, at UNC Chapel Hill, but then also did oral history interviews with some of the first black alumni of Westminster, some of their white counterparts, as well as the first uh, director of minority affairs for the National Association of Independent Schools, who was a black man. Um, and so, and in the midst of this, we elected our, the United States elected its first black president, right? So here I am literally finishing, you know, my Spencer dissertation fellowship application the night that President Obama is elected. And then the next morning I fly to History of Education Society annual meeting. <laughs> it was just, so, you know, this project is developing in the moment in which the United States is, is, is confronting race in particular ways. On one hand, you have folks arguing what an 0809, oh, we're post-racial now, right? Like we've elected our first black president, right? And I do think his election in some ways may have helped people to feel more comfortable especially some of the white folks I interviewed talk with me about some of the things that had happened in the 60s, right? In the, in the early 70s when these first black students uh, desegregated Westminster. Um, on the other hand, we know that um, he faced tremendous backlash basically from day one, right? Um, and so for those of us who were like, mm, no, we're not post-racial yet, <laughs> right? So this was also a moment of kind of um, a, a racial reckoning that has now played out, I would think. I mean, we've, we've had racial reckoning play out over the history of the United States, but in the particular, over the last, what, 
you know, 10, 15 years, we've had it play out in significant ways. Really, you know, you could almost go back to, you know, 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina as well, contributing to how we're thinking about race in the 21st century, right? And in, the, and, in, and in that 20 years, you and I and others are developing as scholars. So it's a really interesting time to produce work that centers race, right? And racism, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, and then a lot, lot of interesting uh, points raised, right? And I'll also say, you know, knowing you, you as a scholar and colleague and friend for, you know, 10 years, you learn a little bit more every time we talk about your work and into <laughs> it. I'll also say, I think University of Illinois lost a golden opportunity to work with you. That did come up, but, you know, we could explore that. Later. I was I was very fortunate to be admitted to several amazing graduate programs, including the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. And even though I did not attend there, I will say I'm always very fortunate that the University of Illinois History of Education crew has continued to mentor, advise, and, and collaborate with me. So, um, so thank you all very much. Well, we, so. we most definitely appreciate that. But, you know, what the path you, you took, right, L led to an incredible contribution. And also, you know, hearing a little bit more about Jackson and attending private school in Jackson. I mean, Jackson is known for um, not, I mean, the infamous citizen council schools that were established as sort of the capital, if you will, of citizen council schools, right? But as you illustrate um, in your own trajectory with St. Andrews, I was not part of that network. And then Westminster is not. So there's a spectrum of private schools and you're really making a contribution, right? Looking at private school desegregation, a topic that ha hasn't been uh, covered uh, thor as thoroughly as public school desegregation. Right. But then also I like, you know, going to your introduction now, or where you really, I mean, it's a theme that comes up with this, I, I, you know, I really like how it's framed here. We talk about um, that you in, in the book contend the lines between public and private blurred as private schools became both focal points of policy and spaces to avoid public school desegregation during mid 20th century. That, that just encapsulates a theme that's coming up about the book. So it's, it's not, you're talking about individual agency. So here are students who are, are you know, themselves agents within the, within the larger black freedom struggle. Right. Complicated notions of private school and private school and public school desegregation. And then you're hitting this larger, this even, even larger contextual point as a historian where you're blurring these traditional public and private lines. So how, as, as, as you're writing this historic moment and making multiple contributions, how do you make sense or how would you define or explain how you came to make these multiple contributions? Um, <laughs> through um, lots of great feedback. No, <laughs> um, I think it was taking, you know, really taking a layered approach to the project, right? Um, to understand that to do a rich school history, um, whereas Westminster was my case study, right? But to understand schooling is to understand that schools do not exist in a vacuum, right? So schools exist within the type of schools that they are. They exist within the, the city or town in which they um, are, you know, where, where they're located, right? So Atlanta is an important backdrop um, in this book as well as just the larger South. Um, and then ultimately through, you know, obviously many conversations with Dr. Soto Walker and then with others like yourself and feedback I received at conferences, right? Just kept churning with ideas, right? 
and this notion that somehow we constantly think of private schools as somehow separate, right? Somehow separate from the public sphere, somehow separate from the influence and um, the hand of federal government, right? Or even state government, which is not the case, right? Um, and so while they are different institutions, than public and they carry other issues than public, they are also susceptible to the winds of change and the winds of resistance, right? As they try to figure out how they're gonna be situated within this kind of larger educational landscape. And that can be for both K through 12 as well as higher education, right? Um, and so that became apparent just with continued reading, continued feedback, especially um, feedback I received from my readers on the first draft of the book manuscript when it was under review with UNC Press, right? Um, and, and really, um, you know, but that notion of blurring public and private um, became kind of obvious to me because, again, you have these inflection moments, right? So, yes, Brown versus Board of Education does not necessarily legally affect these schools, but these schools themselves are responding to public school desegregation. They're not exempt from larger societal change, right? Let alone then over time in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the federal government begins to make um, stipulations to say, and because black folks are fighting back against these segregationist academies, you know, ultimately by 1970, 71, the federal government is saying, hey, look, you can't continue to get tax exemption status if you have discriminatory admissions policies on the books, right? So they're getting this perk from the federal government in terms of tax exemption status, where you don't have to pay taxes on X, Y, and Z. You are a nonprofit, right? And because of how people were misusing money and funneling money into these private schools, you know, Black Mississippians fought back, and then by, you know, 1971, the IRS stipulates that you have to have non-discriminatory admissions policies on the books, right? So as part of the larger civil rights movement, as large as part of the Black freedom struggle, no institution was exempt, right? Because racism was where? And is where? Everywhere, right? So no institution is exempt, and no institution is exempt from the manifestations of white supremacy and in, 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 into how they were founded and, and, and how they exist today, right? Um, so that's, that's how blurring and you know, notions of blurring public and private became, came to the fore for me and how I continue to kind of wrestle with that, with that idea. So it, you, you brought it back to what was, I wanted to ask about and, and um, perhaps probably the last question about, you know, unknown areas, but then future direction. So, you know, maybe we've, you've, you and I have talked about this before and I've heard you present about, you know, sort of following the money. And that's a theme within the field of history, especially when you're looking at large educational institutions, when you follow the money that leads to new questions, right? And especially when you look at desegregation and private schools and the, the, how tax exempt status has been used to finally force, you know, uh, institutions like Bob Jones University in South Carolina, notoriously racist and explicitly exclusionary. But yet with that status, the government, federal government is able to sort of push more inclusive language, right? But at the same time, we have these private donors who are interested in appearing diverse, but not 
too diverse. So could you perhaps uh, elaborate on your thoughts on what you learned in this field? And then is this still leading or will, do you see this leading to future research and perhaps book number two that we can all look forward to? <laughs> um, yes, I think in part, I think it will take more of a backdrop in the next book um, because the heart of this book for me has always been though how these black students navigated this space right and everything else is is hugely important context for understanding the space but at the end of the day we have to understand how black students have navigated educational spaces historically in order for us to be able to perhaps get some glimpses into what are the structures and systems and policies and practices and ideas we need to help them in the 21st century, right? So for us to, yes. So to answer your question in part, yes, right? So I can, I imagine that the next project is really, I'm still wrestling with the ideas, but the idea is to think about this convergence of philanthropy um, especially from white donors, as well as federal government intervention, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and what that intersection means for access and opportunity for Black students, right? So to understand kind of the intricacies of what were the motivations, right? What were the initial ideas? What ultimately got implemented? What ultimately didn't get implemented? How undergirded were these ideas? with what we know were prevalent deficit notions of race and you know um, in the 60s and the 70s right um, how do we problematize how we understand philanthropists and their motivations right and and um, as well as institutions and their motivations for quote unquote wanting to be more diverse but not too diverse um, but then how do we understand how black students, even when they don't know in the moment, they don't know all that context is happening. As a black student on a scholarship or part of a special program, you may not have any idea of all this that's happening that led you to that particular moment of access and opportunity. And in the midst of that, you're trying to figure out, well, how do I navigate this? How do I thrive? How do I survive? But, you know, as you know from your own work, how do I resist? How am I agent of change, right? And so I want to continue both lines of inquiry that are present in the book, right? Um, how do we continue to problematize um, what it means to be black students? I don't necessarily know if it will be strictly in white, predominantly white spaces anymore in the next project. Um, but really, how do we understand this first generation of Black students kind of coming out of the initial decades of school desegregation and the civil rights movement and just uh, getting a general sense of kind of just their daily rhythms? Um, I think we've done a really good job, right, of understanding how Black students have galvanized at particular moments, right, around issues of, of agency and activism and resistance. But I'm, I think I'm getting more interested in just the daily kind of milieu of what it means to just be Black <laughs> as a student in the 60s and the 70s and how perhaps maybe particular programs 
um, shed light on that. Yeah, because, you, you know, you talk about the programs, you know, a lot of a lot of philanthropic programs that were put in place to recruit black yep. students and students of color to private institutions. Right. Right. And then also, it makes, I said that was the last question, but I can't, I have one more, but bear with me here. So you're making me think because, again, one, one of the really, I think, um, one of the takeaways from this book is how you expertly blend two perspectives, right? So you do get, you provide a phenomenal institutional history and you look at how tax uh, exemption works and how admissions policies and who the board was and how they're making decisions. But at the same time, we get to know someone like Michael McBay very well. We follow him um, in his cohort and his peers in desegregating a previously all white private space and how they get to know um, black staff at the school who yep. offer their cars and their homes and their networks to support this first cohort of black students to desegregate Westman. So, you, you know, you do, it's, it's really an inspiration to read in terms of how we, you blend that too, methodologically, as well as conceptually public and private. So how is a closing question, <laughs> how will, you know, for the um, junior scholars in, in the room and also um, students and young scholars, what did you learn from how you navigate the academy? Much mm. What can you share with those tuning in to sort of how do you navigate the book process? Because it is very difficult. They don't talk about school. So what was what is your parting wisdom, if you will, to how to navigate that? You need multiple colleagues and mentors on which to call. Um, you need folks who are willing to give you that honest feedback on that first draft without running and telling somebody, you know, Michelle really came right. <laughs> so, and you need people who can read it from different vantage points. If you're trying to do kind of interdisciplinary work that combines both notions of policy as well as daily life, right? So you're gonna need people who can read it and say, hey, well, think about this was, you know, what the state with a capital S was was advancing and doing. This is what Atlanta was doing. This is what these private schools were doing. But on the other hand, let's think about the complicated experiences of black students navigating, you know, interpersonal institutional racism. Let's think about the black schools and black communities out of which they come. So you have to create, you know, what Carrie Ann Rockamore says in her professional development series, like a menu, um, a menu of mentors. And I would add a menu of colleagues and friends. And so for me, it was really important to be able to have folks like you and Elizabeth Todd Breland and Crystal Sanders and Ansley Erickson, who were like, we're kind of right in line with each other, <laughs> right? Like either your book came out a year or two ahead, but it was really important to be in conversation with folks who had just kind of gone through the publication process, right? My colleague Shawande Mustakim at WashU as well. Um, and then to have folks who have who've been in it, you know, as we say, been in the game a little bit longer, who you can then also go to, but you might not go to them as frequently, but, you know, I had the opportunity to work with folks like Dion Dans and Chris Spann on an edited book and to learn from them and to take a peek into how they think about how to produce this, you know, complicated history, right? And then you, then you have your, you know, we have our senior scholars who we ask to be our discussants, right? And so you, you get feedback from James Anderson and Joanne Williamson-Lott. And, you know, I would still find time to 
obviously to meet with Dr. Siddle Walker and at, at, at conferences and to talk with her with ideas. And, and then I had a tremendous mentor in my department, Mary Ann Zubak. She's been my longtime history of education mentor. You need somebody who's going to read your work and, you know, really give you great feedback on writing, <laughs> you know, as well as just to be able to bounce ideas off. And so I'm fortunate to have, have, to have had uh, such a variety of mentors, um, but that, you know, it does take time. So I would, I would Im import to younger scholars, take the time to develop good relationships with people um, and, and to go to the multiple conferences, to be willing to put your work out at what we did a session where at AHA, right? Like that, you know, American Historical Association, our organization, American historians are the, you know, be willing to take a chance on putting your work out in different spaces, right? Work with, you know, get feedback from, you know, the VP Franklin's of the world, right? Like, you know, and, and if they tell you that they took a long time reading something as one of my, you know, colleagues at WashU told me, they said, that's because they care about your work, Michelle. Don't feel disgruntled or, uh, you know, or like feel like a shame that somebody says, oh, I took this long, took me this long to read your work. But guess what? They still read it and they still gave you feedback. Right. So, um, so that's, you know, that's the advice I would give them, but it takes time and it takes energy. Um, and, you know, just stay true to the project, stay true to the original questions that you asked. I got a lot of different advice about how to start this book, about how to think about the introduction and the, you know, do I want to do the national as the start? But if you notice, the book starts with the black students in the introduction. It starts, Westminster has always been the heart of this story. You know, what happened at this private school, but it's layered with all these other pieces. Well, I hope everyone tuning in took as many notes as I did. Still, still, you know, learning uh, as, as we go through even publishing a book. And I think there's still process of uh, processing yeah. the material. Oh, and I cannot, obviously, special shout out to my, to my editor, Brandon Proya at UNC Chapel Hill, who is just a tremendous person, uh, worked, <laughs> worked very hard with me to meet all the deadlines I needed to meet and to secure amazing readers. And I just want to give him a special shout out without him. Um, you know, helping to really help me understand the process at UNC Press and just being there is a, is a great resource as well, so. Indeed. Well, um, Dr. Purdy, this was an amazing opportunity. I uh, really enjoyed reading the book, enjoying the conversation as well. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you. And thank you to Patrick Ryan, editor um, for the Society for the History of Children and Youth, and to anybody who tunes in. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcast. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SHCY.org.